0: So we're in Psalm 23 for the final time this morning. So let's begin. Let me tell you just briefly about a medieval monk who once pre-warned his congregation that the following week he was going to speak on the love of God. So the following week it was evening time and as it got darker and darker and inside the cathedral it was completely dark, he took a, a candle, lit it and then went to the crucifixion the scene of Jesus on the cross. First of all, he lit up the crown of thorns and then he moved the candle across to his wrists and to where the nails would have pierced those. And finally, he moved the candle to Jesus' side where the spear was thrust into. Then the candle went out and he left the building. That was his sermon on the love of God. You see, the cross is the quintessential illustration or demonstration of God's love for his world. And so as we look at Psalm 23 for the final time and the mention of God's love in there, we'll see that the cross underpins the psalm. So let's look at it together. It's our final time and we'll have two headings. Our first heading is Jesus the host lavishes his love upon his guests. Jesus the host lavishes his love upon his guests. Verses 5 and 6 is what we're looking at. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Familiar words. Catherine read them for us earlier. So in our third session now, it's the third movement of the psalm. And this scene now is a completely different scene to the sheep in, in the green fields and the still lakes and we've gone from the dark ravines where there's danger to a brand new scene now, a completely different one, where we have a host and a guest. It's a royal banquet. The The shepherd has transformed into this lovely, incredible, competent host. And all of this is going to take place under the watchful eye of the enemy of David, but no longer as a threat, but now clamped down, restrained, powerless, and watching on in disdain. Look at verse 5 again. You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Enemies looking on without any power to intervene. So I think it speaks of David's triumph now. He's gone from being in danger to now looking looking upon his enemies without fear. You see, the idea of eating with your enemy watching on is, is either a scenario where there's complete security, absolute confidence of safety, or it's one of those ancient scenarios where Ancient warriors uh, would have feasts after a battle and they would bring in their defeated enemy and humiliate them by making them watch on or, or entertain them. You may remember Samson had a similar situation to this when he was captured and how he was humiliated in Judges 16. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. So for David, the tables have turned. He's no longer vulnerable, no longer in danger. But instead, he has the advantage. He's been provided for, taken care of, in absolute security, confidence. With his enemy, Still somewhat present, but powerless. And so the fearful scenario, verse 4, has been transformed. The banquet goes much further than providing just security. Notice, you anoint my head with oil. It's a picture of both healing and of conveying honour. You see, in ancient times, before entering a banquet hall, A host would would honour his guest by anointing him with oil. It it set him apart as someone who's receiving special care, someone distinct. Moreover, the oil had medicinal value. It it not only conveyed honour, but provided healing and relief from the wounds of an arduous journey or flight. Notice next, the, the, the lavishness of the banquet. My cup overflows. So, David has gone from rations whilst being on the run, from perhaps some scavenging food, to a feast where he is more than amply provided for. His cup can't contain uh, the blessing. If you recall the story of Joseph from Genesis, you may remember that when he's the prime minister of Egypt, his brothers come down from Israel to Egypt in the famine to get food. And it's on the second of those journeys that Joseph takes them into his home and provides for them, puts a meal before them. And then where Benjamin, his full-blooded brother, is sitting, and on his plate, we're told this, listen to this, Genesis 43. When portions were served to them, his brothers, from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. I don't suppose he could eat that much, but can you see what he was conveying? It was conveying Joseph's special regard, Joseph's special love for his full-blood brother, for little Benjamin, his younger brother. It was great favour, great love for this brother of his. And so the extra portions convey this deep and awesome, wonderful love from the host towards the guest. I recall from when we were in the UK um, that occasionally we'd visit family from North Wales to England, an arduous, long journey. It took about an hour and a half. Hey, that's a long journey back in the UK, okay? And so we'd travel occasionally to see family, my sister, for example, and one of the highlights was eating her authentic Bangladeshi Curries and she was a great cook, and she'd do all my favorite dishes, some incredible dishes. And the one thing I'll recall is that as I would be eating, and there'd be food on my plate, that she would carry on serving me over and over, more than almost more than my plate could contain. And certainly, it seemed more than I could eat, but she would just keep piling it on, and it demonstrated you see, it was, it was her exhibiting love for me, a brother. It's lovely, sweet. And so the psalm is conveying, can you see in in the guests, in David's cup, overflowing from the host, it's conveying God's overflowing love for David. It's so immense and so great, so wide, so high and deep, that David can't contain it. his cup, Can't hold this extravagant, this over-the-top, this incredible, undeserved love. Jesus the host lavishes his love upon his guests. Christian, I'm sure that I don't need to remind you that we have an adversary in the devil in this world. He stands against us and his intentions are always and only evil. Jesus tells us so in John 10, John 10, verse 10, the thief, speaking of the devil here, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. That is his, Sole and primary directive to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, naturally speaking, we ought to fear that we ought to be in mortal danger and we ought to flee at any given opportunity. After all, how could we possibly take on a foe like the devil? We can't. So, the point I want to make just here. We can't take on the devil. And it's foolish to think that we could do that. It's as foolish to think that we can take on the devil as it was foolish for Saul's army to attempt to take on Goliath. the only person being that could destroy or take on and annihilate, bring Goliath to an end, was God's anointed king to be David, God's chosen instrument, David, who prefigures Jesus for us, and the only person, the only being that could effectively take on the devil and subdue him and defeat him and disarm him is Jesus, not you, and certainly not me. Jesus defeats our foe for us and he does it in that most incredible scene on top of a hill, Upon a cross, at the moment when he seemed to be defeated by the devil, was in fact defeating the devil. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the written code with his regulations that was written against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, the devil's in focus here, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Our David, King Jesus, <laughs> defeats and humiliates our foe. And so, having disarmed him and humiliated him, defeated him, our enemy now can only watch on as Jesus takes us under his wings and loves us, provides for us, cares. For us, Christian, on the authority of God's Word, you are the object of Jesus' affection. Did you hear that? You are, Christian, the object of Jesus' affection. He defeated your arch enemy for you. Because of his love for you. And so you can be sure, always be sure, that his intent towards you, since eternity, is good. It's to lavishly pour his grace upon you, to love you, to care for your every need, to accompany you on your journey, and to take you ultimately... To his kingdom. Do you know that? As the wonder and the awe of that captured your heart, do you, do you experience that, feel that, know that daily that you're the object of Jesus' affection? Hey. Let me ask, do you ever question God's care for you? Do you ever wonder if it matters to him that you're hurting, that you're in need, in confusion and bewildered, struggling, in despair? Listen to what the apostle writes. In the New Testament, Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see the foundation of God's commitment and love for you? It's the cross. And it becomes the foundation of the never-ending grace of God. That is yours, Christian. We can't possibly comprehend the, the depth and length and width of it. But it's secured by our champion Jesus and it's ours and it's endless. How will he, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God loves you. He's taking care of your adversary so that he can take care of you fully, your welfare and your well-being. You see, he hasn't just got the world in his hand. The trouble with that, it's too generic, too general, too wide. He hasn't just got the world in his hand. He's got you. Remember we said this in the first part. In the palms of his hand, he's carved you. You're precious to him. He loves you and is caring for you. You prepare, writes David, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Such love. That is uncontainable. So he's on your side. He's working it out for you. He cares for you. And his love for you, Christian, cannot be measured. And, Christian, however complex or difficult our reality, our circumstances might look, even right now, however bad they may be, it doesn't change this objective truth that he's committed to you lovingly, that he prepares a table before you, before you in the presence of your enemies, that he anoints your head with oil and that your cup overflows, they are constant truths even in our darkest hour, our greatest trial, our most severe pain. The worst scenario you're in, God's love and care and provision is yours. It doesn't change. It doesn't waver. It's always constant. You see, friends, God's love for you is such that we can't base our... Our reality of it on the transient or on our circumstances, even our confidence has to be on truth, on His Word. Romans 8 again, Catherine, ready for us earlier. Listen to this. Here's the truth you see, regardless of what our situation is, however dark, however difficult, it doesn't change. Truth. And here is the truth. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? Nothing, no circumstance, no reality, no trouble, no pain, nothing in my life, nothing in your life, changes that reality, separates you from Jesus and his love for you. It's because his love for you, we've said already, is anchored in his cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal you want proof? Do you have a doubt? Do you want some assurance? Do you want to be certain that Jesus loves you? That you're the object of his affection, that he's committed to your care. Take a look at the cross. And then when you read Psalm 23, know that this is a reality of your existence. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Jesus, the host, lavishly pours out his love on his guests. Secondly then, secondly, Let me more briefly. Jesus the host assures us of his love and presence forever. Jesus the host assures us of his love and presence forever. Verse 6, the final verse. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David having been the beneficiary of God's overwhelming love and care, understands, and here's the key bit, okay, the important bit, the money shot. Here's, Here's the thing. He understands that it's irrevocable. Did you hear that? David understands that God's loving care towards him is irrevocable. It can't be taken back. It never changes. Surely goodness and love, God's goodness and love, will follow me all the days of my life. Can you see the confidence that David has? His absolute confidence, absolute assurance that nothing in his relationship to God is going to change, can change. He understands that God is immutable. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't give up. He doesn't uncomplete. He doesn't. He completes rather whatever he begins. It's a wonderful thing about our God that He sees a project through, and whatever project He's begun in your life, friends, whatever He's doing in you, He will complete. He won't give up. He won't change his mind. He won't fail. And whatever obstacles, whatever hurdles, whatever difficulties that may be en route, he's got every one of them already, already sorted for you. And so David can savour God's love and care without fear or anxiety. This isn't going to change this circumstance will be real continuously. In Les Mis, the the play is made into a movie. We have Jean Valjean, the the lead character. And at one stage, when he's on the run, he comes across the cathedral and the bishop there, um, uh, uh, church rather, Uh, Mariel invites him in and... And treats him well, shows kindness, grace to him, feeds him. And, and as Jan is, is, is feeding on this bowl of soup, he's eating it in a frenzy. Because he fears that this situation may change at any moment. He may get arrested or this bishop may have a change of heart, especially if he discovers who he is. And and, and so so he's got to make the most of this moment before things change. That is not how the Christian is to relate to God's love for him or her. Whatever your life may be, whatever may be in your background, whatever sin, whatever difficulty, whatever hardship, nothing can change about God's love for you. Nothing can change. And David understands that he understands that the, the goodness that is the beneficiary of this love that he's experiencing is constant there 's no need for fear or anxiety. God is not going to give up on him. God hasn 't been teasing him only to to take his favor away there 's nothing worse is there, to have something and to lose it there 's nothing worse to be exposed. To something lovely and then have it taken away. There's nothing worse uh, than than losing the, the, the wonder of something that we have. And, Christian, God's word to you is He is not going to take away His love for you. It's set, it's constant. It's built upon, underpinned by the death of his Son. And God will never forget the death of his Son. All eternity will be testimony to that. You know, when we're in heaven, when we're that side of life, when we encounter Jesus, Revelation tells us, that he will still bear the marks where the nails pierced his skin. God will never cease to love you. And his mercy will never cease to reach you. In fact, that, the word there in English, follow, Is much stronger in the original Hebrew. I remember when I was at Barber College as a young student, I was young (laughs) at one time. Well as as a young student, youngish at least, I was in my thirties. I remember my principal hammering home this point that this this word follow it, it speaks more of pursue of hunting down. Imagine a leopard hunting down his prey, how how he stalks him, how he relentlessly watches on, how he seeks its perfect moment, how he never takes its eye off the prey, how he he sneaks upon upon him stealthily and how finally he pursues him, runs after him, pounces on him and takes his prey. The love of God or the goodness and love of God, friends, is like that. It follows you, doesn't just follow you, pursues you, hounds you down, haunts you, discovers you, takes you, becomes your reality. Surely, goodness and love will follow me. And here's the point we don't have to go on the pursuit. For God's love and goodness. We don't have to search it out, find it, discover it. It finds us out. Surely your goodness and love will follow me. Can you see the initiative Christian lies with God. When we need God's grace, when we need God's love, when we need to know he's there, he's working it out for us, he's walking with us, it finds us. It always finds us. It always gets to us. We don't even need to plead for it or bargain for it, try and buy it. You have the assurance, the guarantee that God's love and care, his goodness for you, will find you. Will reach you. Will be yours. Hey. Prayer is a good thing. And let me encourage you to pray. We encourage that again in the first. Of these three messages on the psalm. Don't give up the Bible says. Pray without ceasing. Pour your heart out to God. Tell him how you feel. He knows. But tell him nevertheless. But nor even prayer. Or rather, the love of God and the goodness of God is not anchored even in our prayers. It's anchored in God's relentless pursuit of you. You see, we don't have to go after it. It will come after us. Christian. Jesus' is love for you, his care package for your life, will find you out. Will come to you. Will be yours. Just wait for it. Hold out for it. Believe in it. It is yours. It is marked out for you. And it will be Your reality. And finally, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, he has both your now and your future, eternity in hand. This loving care that we enjoy is not temporary, it's not confined to just merely this existence. It transcends it. And that's the wonder of this, the hope of Christianity, that what we have in Jesus now in this temporal world transcends into the next eternal world. You have Jesus now and Jesus is your future. John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus promises you. Do you see that? He promises you his love and care now and his love and care then. never ends it goes into eternity in fact his love for you began in eternity (laughs) and his love for you continues into eternity and I will dwell in the house of the Lord the presence of the Lord the company of the Lord the environment of the Lord's love for me I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus the host lovingly pours out his love upon his guests. Jesus the host assures us of his love and presence forever. Amen.